one of the big failures of, I think, our generation of Judaism is that so much of it was this kind of cursory thing and nobody took us into the room with the good stuff. Such as? There's all this good stuff. Oh, my God. Lay a couple on me. Oh. I mean, just lay, just like give me a taste of the good stuff. Start. Uh, you know, it's hard to even. I'm, I'm like, I've written eight books. I mean, I don't know where you want, his, want me to start. Speaking of the good stuff, and I guess that you had started to stumble on that in the process of um, studying religion. I mean, it is. Oh, no, you're, you're shaking your head. No. I mean, you know, my. my the academic study of religion was, gosh, actually archaeologists, you know, can prove that the thing that people believe didn't actually happen. Ha ha ha. And let's look at the literary motifs here and blah, 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 right? Um, let's talk about ritual theory and what people think is happening when they're doing a ritual. It wasn't until A having gotten all of that base and then I opened up the prayer book and was like, Oh, I can kind of see what's happening here. (laughs) I get that this is doing. Oh, and then this starts and stops. Huh? But, um, there were a couple of points. One was having this aha moment at some point along the way of getting that 2000 years of nuanced, sophisticated theology did not think that God was a man up in the sky who sees you when you're sleeping and knows when you're awake and, um, uh, you know, is going to be mad at you if you do, don't do the right thing. You're describing Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have this Santa Claus theology or the vending machine theology, right? If you do the prayer the right way, or like a Porsche is going to be waiting outside. Is that an influence of Christianity or is that just sort of like pop culture? I, we, we live in an American Christian, Christianized context. I mean, pop culture is Christian culture. 94% sure. of, of the country is Christian. So, But not theologically. But no, but those things, I mean, the this idea of God as Zeus came when the Renaissance was like, oh, hey, Greek culture's cool. And you've got Michelangelo playing off of Greek sculptures when he's doing the Sistine Chapel, right? It's not, it's not from nowhere. Um, but to get that every religious tradition really has this understanding of the divine as the big bigness, the great interconnected everythingness, uh, you know, that there are all sorts of ways to talk about the thing that resonated with my experience and that there were theological streams, uh, you know, I kind of hold by phenomenology, aka, you can't talk about the thing without talking about your experience of the thing. And, you know, for me as a feminist, it's, and you've got to have some humility about understanding that your experience of the thing is not the sum total of the thing, right? This is a tiny puzzle piece you got. How nice for you. But that you can start there and you can have a conversation about that. And then I graduated college and I was like, okay, I guess I don't hate Judaism. I've moved to San Francisco because it's the late nineties. And why wouldn't you? Um, I guess I Seattle was already over at that point. <laughs> no, I know. It was, I mean, 
Uh, SF was was a thing for a minute. Um, it hadn't been destroyed yet. And I said, okay, I guess I want to know where would be my synagogue in case I ever want to go. And I accidentally stumbled into a place run by a guy named Rabbi Alan Liu, who um, had spent 20 years as a very serious Zen Buddhist before he realized that he was a Jewish guy named Alan from Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> the Judaism... The, the Jewish hippie to Buddhism train runs every hour on the hour. Yeah, exactly. But he, you know, he actually wound up catching the one on the way back. Oh, he came back. Yeah. Yeah. And was like, oh, I, <laughs> Buddhism sits meditation twice a day. Is there anything like that in Judaism? Yes. Um, and I wound up in his, and he's, he was extraordinary. His memory be for a blessing, but um, I sort of, sitting in his synagogue and hearing him talk about the Torah as not a bunch of things you got to do or else Santa Claus is going to be mad at you, but rather the story of both our encounter with the sacred now and every moment. Which is a big part of Buddhism as well. Right. And our own unfolding journey now, you know, every moment and, um, you know, that it's not, that it can be all of these different multi-layered things and, and understanding that like <laughs> our tradition has always said, you know, turn it and turn it and turn it. The Torah has, has 70 faces that you can understand it on, on the historical level and this literary level and this wild spiritual level. And oh, that one too. Oh, how about this? How about this? And that it's playful and it's joyful and expansive and it's, and it's a guide to make you not just connected to the big bigness and it feels so good and groovy, but that it's actually the pathway to make you, um, more kind and more aware of other people and more ethical and more uh, aware of your own responsibilities to other people and the world. Oh, so I followed him around for five years. It's his fault. I'm a rabbi. I don't want to use the word malleable, but you know, if there's a sense in which this thing can adapt and mean different things to different people, why is that specific framework necessary? Um, A, I, so there's a Midrash, a Jewish legend, ancient Jewish legend that says that when the Torah was given on Sinai, it was translated into 70 languages. So all the nations can hear it, AKA, like, I don't, I don't think that Judaism is the one true magic answer and that everybody else is wrong, right? I, I, like the Torah, so to speak, is also in Sanskrit and also in Arabic and also in Greek and also in, you know what I mean? Like look, everybody's, there are lots of paths to the divine, to the one thing. And I think if you are Muslim, you've got your path, right? And if you are Buddhist, you've got your path. And there are some people who have experiences of not feeling at home where they are born and they have to go find home. And I can't speak to that, but you know, you should try to get, find yourself at home first 
do the work to make sure that it's not just, oh, you were raised in a toxic version of the thing. And like, there's probably a kinder version of the thing. And if, if that's not home, then figure out like there are converts to Judaism for whom like that was just always home. Great. But, um, like Judaism is my path because I was born a Jew, number one. And number two, the thing is not what is the answer to the meaning of this one verse, right? It's a multivocal tradition intentionally. You open up a, a what we call a, a micro load, like the, the way we study Torah and you've got the one verse and then you've got what Rashi says and Ibn Ezra and, uh, you know, Makar Chaim and all of these guys and these blocks of text arguing with each other literally over the centuries on the page. The point is the conversation. And the point for us is the process of engaging in the conversation and being part of the conversation and the process and the learning and the growing and the stretching and going, what about, huh, but what if it's this? And da, 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 like the, the work of Torah isn't the answer. It's the process. I guess I'm not entirely clear why the first part, you know, of being born a Jew is important to this later embrace of Judaism. Um, you mean why, why am I not a Buddhist or why? Why was that point one? Cause, because I mean, obviously there, you know, there's a, there's a, there, there's, there's some random, random chance by, by which, you know, we're born where we are and when we are and in a given belief system. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in my experience, a lot of people, if they go trying to, first of all, if you're going to go find a belief system and go jump to the thing that is the shiny thing over there, um, you might want to check yourself. Like, are you a white person exotifying something because it's a traditionally a, a practice of people of color? You know, like what's what's going on? What's the dynamic, right? There's all of that that needs to be unpacked. Um, but more than that, um, and again, for some people, their true home is not where they were born. And, and, and that's a fact, right? Just as some people, their correct gender is not the sex they were assigned at birth. Right. Um, but for most people, um, as an adult, find, being able to find home in the religious practice that they were raised in, there's a sense of home there, right? There's a sense of being able to settle into a heritage, a who you are, an ancestors, a legacy, right? That I, I am connecting not only to a thing for me, Danya, an individual, but this is about... And not even, you know, my parents' experience, but this is about my grandparents' complicated relationship to assimilation to this country. It's about my great-great-grandparents coming to this country. It's about the mystery of who the rabbi is that was the one whose name got truncated (laughs) into my mother's maiden name, right? The the Ellis Island. 
Yeah, no, it was like Bereb Yisrael Aleb, like Rabbi Yisrael Aleb became Brill, became, but who is, who was this guy? I don't, I've been trying to find out. I'll never know. But, um, you know, and, and it's about those, the stories of the great grandfather that was drafted into the Russian army because they were trying to kill the Jews. And, you know, it's all of that is, is part of who I am. And the older I get, the more I am connecting with the concept of ancestors. Um, and the more feeling grounded in my heritage feels important to me. And, and, and for me, have my spirit, having my spiritual practice line up with that feels again, you know, like I'm, it's, it's just, it's a home. It's a things are lined up. Um, and, and again, that's not everybody's experience, but I, I, I have learned and noticed that it is true for a lot of people. You had said that you didn't necessarily have that experience of, I guess, having to go away from home, but, but you did, right? I mean, you, you, you did go away and come back. And is there a sense in which that was necessary for you to get where you are now? Oh, yeah. I, um, I don't think I could have, uh, I mean, you know, what was being offered to me as a teenager in Sunday school or whatever, um, was, was not a substantial thing and was not satisfying to me. So I, there was, I had no eyes to see the thing. And interestingly enough, I, you know, I, after this stretch of, you know, nine, 10 years of, you know, I'm an atheist business, um, I started being willing to open myself to like the tiniest intimations of spirituality on a trip to Italy, <laughs> my senior year of college, wandering around all of these churches. You started to say a word beginning with I, and I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I right, like <laughs> that was it, not the country I was expecting. Correct, right? But it was it was in these Christian, in these Catholic churches, in these gorgeous, exquisite spaces that were indisputably holy spaces, indisputably spaces that had been filled up with the the juju of people's prayers for however many hundreds of years, right? And they they it's gonna sound woo, but there's a thing about vibes. Like you go to certain spaces where people have been praying and praying for hundreds of years and you can feel it, you can tell. And and you know, and walking around and the art and just you know, weeping at all the pietas and thinking about like the art and symbolism and and that was where I was starting to be willing to kind of creep closer because it wasn't too personal. And then I was being, you know, it was, I could sort of like, you know, <laughs> it was like the little kitty that <laughs> you had to go, you know, approach close carefully. And, you know, and, and it was, it took me a few steps to be willing to get to where it was going to actually be really personal for me. What did your family think? <laughs> when I when I got religious, there's religious, and then there's there's becoming a rabbi, right? <laughs> Which I, is a, an, an extra step in becoming religious. Actually, in my family, it was all kind of the same thing, um, because for them the the real thing was the logistics. Like suddenly, Danya is 
you know, not going to be willing to do X and Y and Z on Shabbat. <laughs> Suddenly Tanya is, you know. Okay. You're, you're taking yourself out of the game for a day, right. day and a half. Or, or like less likely to want to go to Shaw's Crab Shack for dinner or, you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, It does limit your dietary restrictions somewhat, doesn't it? Right. You know, the, the so there were all of these sort of inconveniences and logistics that the um, threw the family system into disarray a little bit. Um, and, you know, uh, my brother, who is now, uh, he's a scientist, um, was at the beginning of his studies, but he, you know, he's like the, oh, you know, very enthusiastic, the early grad student. I'm a scientist. I care about data. And he's asking me if I still believe in dinosaurs. <laughs> like, my dude, like, it's still me. Um, but these ideas about fundamentalism that have poisoned the cultural conversation. Those are certainly beliefs that exist in modern America. There's a there's a, a there's a museum devoted to them in Cincinnati. I understand, but the 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 idea that becoming religious means that one becomes a, a fundamentalist creationist flat earther, uh, and that there isn't this complex nuanced thing in the middle is, uh, to some degree, the triumph of fundamentalism, and to some degree, the the failure of <laughs> other parts of the religious conversation. Uh, that people don't even they would you know that, that 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 would even be a question for him right and yes there was one fight with um with my father that involved him screaming at the top of his lungs i just don't understand why not eating pork is spiritual <laughs> what do you say to something like that um i you know you don't respond when when uh you don't respond in that moment. <laughs> That's not the time to have that conversation. But when the time does come, is there an answer? Yeah. I mean, food practices are a spiritual practice overall. It's a, well, first of all, I've been a, a vegetarian since 1993. So for me personally, the, the pork was never, I hadn't had a, we, you know, we had bacon growing up, but I don't think I'd had bacon since I left the house for college. Um, but um yeah overall it's a practice of being thoughtful about what you choose to eat and what you choose not to the separation of milk and meat is because meat is death milk is life it's like a way of saying fine you're going to eat meat that's okay just be clear about what you're doing and have some intentionality there okay um you know, and there are all sorts of things, you know, if, if it had been, if we're going to say there are going to be some things that are yes, some things that are no. If we had said cows, no, pork, yes, then we would be asking why, right? But ultimately, pork, it's no pork because we don't eat, um, it was going to be, it was no wild boars originally. And, and we don't eat predators. Sounds like, and I, I mean, I suspect this is the case for just about everybody, but there's kind of a process of figuring out which aspects work for you. Um, yes and no. There's a, it, it, there's, there are philosophical approaches to it, right? One is you figure out what works for you. And on some level, that's probably true for everybody in some way. 
But the larger philosophical thing is if you are sitting, if you are conceiving of your spiritual practice as a buffet and you're going to pick the things you like and ignore the stuff you don't like, then this practice is not going to transform you in the ways that you need. And it's going to be really easy to gravitate towards the things that aren't going to ask anything of you. And it's going to be really easy to not do the things that are actually going to demand some growth and some growing up from you. And that's tempting, right? (laughs) Like who who doesn't want to skip the hard stuff? Um, But a whole full mature spiritual practice involves, you know, sitting with the discomfort and saying, like, including why is this so uncomfortable for me? And what's that about? And gosh, I decided I was going to keep Shabbat, but I really want to open my computer right now because I'm having a feeling and feelings are yucky and whatever, right? There's the element of I decided to keep Shabbat. Correct. But, you know, and, and what does that look like and how does that... So on the one hand, people need to come into a practice in the way that makes sense for them. And generally, when people decide to do all the thing all at once, it doesn't stick because it's too much. And like anything, you need to figure out how to um, have your spiritual practice be a part of your life in a way that's going to be real and meaningful Um, and not like I've totally rearranged my life. Oh, wait, I hate it. I'm going to undo all of it, right? Um, and and on the other, there has to be the willingness to stick in the add-in, stay with some of the hard and uncomfortable stuff and not just treat it like a, you know, a buffet where you do the pleasant and fun things and avoid the scary things. You said that effectively from your family standpoint, that becoming religious and being a rabbi might as well be one of the same, but obviously like they're not. And, and for, for you, they're not. And, and there, there's a lot of extra steps you have to take. There's a lot of study that you have to do when it was apparent that that was the road you wanted to go down. I mean, was there, was there a plan? Was there something that you specifically planned to do with those studies and those learnings? Oh no, I, it was very, um, treasure hunt clue based like the the next clue and you know it was the still small voice made some noise about rabbinical school the still small voice of my intuition deep within radio station god whatever you want to call it um a couple of years before i was ready to seriously consider it and i ran pretty hard from that (laughs) did not it was ineffective it's scary. It's a big deal. I was not ready to do something that big and hard and serious and give up all of the fun and all of my friends in San Francisco and the freedom and the, you know, and take on that level of religious practice and na 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 na. Did you have to give up friends? I I would have to move from where I lived. Um and 
you know, when you're in twenties, it's a, you know, your friends are everything. You didn't lose friends because oh, this was the no, path no, you were no. taking. I mean, and I, I did lose a handful of friends as I got more religiously observant, but obviously those pe- people stunk and <laughs> were not people, you know, uh, people who, who needed to see themselves out, saw themselves out of my life functionally. But yeah, I, you know, I kind of ran from it because it just was big and scary. And finally, I still small voice said, you have to go to LA and go to rabbinical school. Do I have to? Yes. And then the answer was, you have to make it through. And it was never clear to me what the thing was. And towards the end, it was like, I don't know, maybe work on campus. You know, younger people are great and they're open. And so the treasure hunt clue kind of gave me that. That was my next assignment. And I have leaped into the void of not knowing what the next thing was uh, a, n- a number of times. Granted, this is this is my bias in that the, like any, I would say pretty much every interaction I've ever had with a rabbi has been through temple and that I had always just sort of assumed that, um, in becoming a rabbi that the end game is to, to lead a congregation for some people. And for some people that is one thing they would be delighted to do, but they'd also be delighted to do other things. And I, you know, there are rabbis who are hospice chaplains, who are prison chaplains, who are hospital chaplains, um, who work at camps, who, um, our community, you know, community organizers do amazing deep political work who are, geez, Louise, you know, work on campus who did, but, but, but like there are all sorts of amazing ways that, you know, educators do all sorts of incredible work. Um, and working with a community is a thing that a lot of people love to do and a for good reason, because it's like it's fun, it's awesome, um, and you know it's not everybody's path. What is your superpower? That you know, what mutant abilities do you gain when you become a rabbi? <laughs> you go into the rabbi tron. Dun dun dun. Um, it does a thing. Ordination does a thing. Just like when you you know go to the the chuppah, the wedding canopy, and you show up single, and you leave married, and ritual alchemy does a thing. Um, I mean, listen, rabbi means teacher. So the big thing is to be able to um, teach Torah and to hold ritual space and to hold human and pastoral space in a certain way. Um, and different rabbis have different specific superpowers. The The number of things that encompass the potential job description of rabbi is too vast for any of us to do most of them. So we all find our little niche. I would say that as an outside observer, that your superpower is um, engaging with people on social media and not losing your mind. Oh God. I hope that I have other superpowers. I, I would hope. I'm not saying this in a bad way or in a, in a judgmental way. And I think that it's something that, that we need. I mean, you know, we need, we need rational actors who, you know, and obviously 
I listen, I, I work in technology. I hate social media, but you know, I, I can't quit it, but it's obviously the, the most instantaneous way to reach a lot of people at once. It really is. And you know, it's, it's, it has turned out to be a way for me to, uh, connect to people, you know, teaching Torah, you know, uh, I don't know, talking about all sorts of stuff. Um, and that, that is one thing. Um, I think in a lot of ways, I'm a translator and a bridge. Like I go back and forth between the tradition and kind of people on, on the outside and, and, I feel like there are plenty of people catering to the Jews who are on the inside, who who know the inside baseball stuff, who are comfortable in the Jewish world. And um, I, I have always wanted to make sure that the people who have not felt at home and cared for um, or welcome are, um, are included, are celebrated, are, um, are, are attended to get, you know, are also have access to all of the tools and the good stuff. Um, and also everybody, like we've got, like some things are like, Hey, Jews, this is yours specifically. And some of it is like, Hey, there are all these amazing things in my tradition that anybody should know about because it's just good stuff. Um, and sometimes I try to take the, great stuff that I'm learning from amazing human beings in the outside world and try to sort of bring it into the Jewish community. Like you guys, what if we had a power analysis? What would that look like? You know? Um, so, and you know, all of the weird experiences, the weird, amazing, wonderful experiences I've had in my, uh, in my life that are, not as typical, shall we say, of the your average uh, rabbi um, can help me sort of facilitate those conversations. This is certainly the case with everybody to to some degree, but you know you are you are bringing the worldview and the learnings that you had prior to this process into it and adapting them. You know, it's it wasn't. I assume that it wasn't. Becoming a rabbi that made you a feminist, for example. <laughs> I know, I know. I said that with a straight face. Yeah. Um. <laughs> no. Um. No. I discovered feminism in high school. I discovered feminism when I was listening to punk and hardcore, which was about fifteen minutes before Riot Girl. Thank you very much that old um so yeah i feminism came first activism came first i was doing abortion clinic defense in high school i was you know doing queer activism in college um and so you know it's, it's i've always refused to give up you know, other like it, it, people who have who have 
been willing to give up parts of themselves because they think they're supposed to in order to be the capital R rabbi are the ones whose Torah, who you can tell in their Torah. And the people, you can also tell who is drawing from all of their life, whether all of their life is you know, a, a very, you know, like I, like a kind of very typical path or a very atypical path or whatever. People who, who, who demand to stay integrated, like you have to. For something, let, let's say trans rights specifically, because obviously that's um, unfortunately, you know, very much in, in the news right now. Something that you feel inherently you have you have a a feeling about and a sense and and it's not something that you necessarily need that you know that you're not even necessary that you don't need that that religious framework what what is the process of i'm trying to think of how, how to phrase this but how to sort of to to bring that to bring that framework in is there a sense in which you're almost kind of working backwards um no i mean it doesn't feel like work to me. I, I just, uh, you know, something like that. People sometimes say, oh, go, you're, you know, making stuff up. It's not work. If the whole point, as far as I can tell, of our existence down here is taking care of each other, right? Like how we serve whatever it is that I call God, or that I think any of our, our traditions refer to as God in any way, like what like the, our job is to take care of each other and to create a more just world and to let every creates conditions for every single human being's beautiful shining potential to exist and when it becomes this paternalistic thing of a bunch of men sitting around in a room deciding whether or not they're going to permit someone to be who they are, you know, you have, <laughs> like, you've turned the wrong corner, right? Something's gone wrong. Your superpower is, is being the translator, it is bringing some of these, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, historical ideas, you know, some from the Torah, some from um, scholarship. Um, I guess it's how do you how do you connect these things? Like for, you know, for example, you know, you've, you've got, you've got this book about um, your, your most recent book, you know, it's about, it's about apologizing. It's about forgiveness. You obviously it's something that is like, you know, very much in the zeitgeist right now and um, largely for good reason. You sit down and you decide that that's something that you want to tackle and write about. What, what is the process of bringing those teachings in? Well, it's, I mean, these, all of these things are very organic. And I need to say, in terms of uh, trans stuff, I mean, this is the part where I'm also a big nerd. And also, like, you know, Judaism talks about uh, various um, sex-slash-gender categories, because our, our ideas of what sex and gender are in 21st century don't map to 2,000 years ago. Um, but you know, the various intersex folk are described in the Mishnah, which is a 2000 year ago, years, year old oral tradition. Right. And, you know, they're 
all sorts of different ways that gender is described and and explained and conceived in Kabbalah. And there, like there are all sorts of fascinating ways that we think about gender in Judaism that are not, um, you know, this sort of cis superior, but it's cis supremacist. But it, so, you know, that's part of the translating. But so, you know, for example, with the latest book, this is part of being part of multiple conversations. This came out of somebody asking me, what do we do with all of these Me Too dudes who have given these garbage acknowledgments? Um, you know, yeah, I did it, but, you know, it's really bad for my family, right? Or whatever. What do we do with these famous men who've been outed and acknowledged that they caused sexual abuse and that they're perpetrators um, and have not done any real accountability work? Now what? Do we just keep them in the corner forever? Do we what? And um, so I wrote up a Twitter thread of um, kind of what I thought the answer was according to Maimonides, because he's our guy on repentance. And the response to that was overwhelming. Like people had, you know, it was like, because our cultural emphasis is so much on forcing the person who has been harmed to forgive and not asking anything of the perpetrator. And so for me to say, here are the five things that a perpetrator must do. And these are significant steps that involve accountability and transformation and amends and more transformation and and making different choices. And here's what we would see if Louis C.K. actually meant it and blah, blah, blah. Um, And so that led to an op-ed, which led to conversations on NPR, which led to me figuring out that Maimonides' structure um, was not only useful in terms of repairing harm in the public sphere, which had never occurred to me because we always talk about it as like apologizing to your coworker or your, you know, sibling. There wasn't really a public sphere in the same way that there is now. There's totally a public sphere. I mean, not, there wasn't an internet, but there was a, you know. It's not global in the way. I mean, it sounds like, right. like the, the, the forgiveness was perhaps a little bit more intimate. <laughs> No, but there was there was a public you know you can go out into the market and own sure there was a literal public square yeah (laughs) exactly Um, but then I started messing around with the as you know I'm having more conversations with people about it and it's like well actually this applies to institutional harm actually apply this applies to national harm and systemic racism and land back and you know it's like Pandora's box had been opened in terms of me understanding that this lens was useful for a bunch of contemporary issues and struggles. And as somebody who was already a student of a lot of different contemporary, you know, I, I don't, I could not have written this book if I had not been um, trying very actively to be learning about indigenous issues for a long time, for example, right. Or, or whatever. Right. So that's the translator part. Hey, everybody, here's a really good lens. Take it. In the process of writing that, that initial thread, you, you've got some rough idea, you know, you, and, and you have these studies that you can pull on, but the, but, but it's really putting in the work. I mean, it, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have the answers that you have now had you not gone through the process of writing an entire book about it, I assume. Of course not. No. Do not recommend 
taking on a major nonfiction project, um, um, signing a contract a month before a massive world pandemic hits. That's interesting, actually, because I, I would sort of uh, assume the opposite to a certain extent in that, like, at least, like, I don't know, theoretically, you've got a little more free time. <laughs> if one does not have three children, theoretically, one would. <laughs> Go to school. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> That's here. You suddenly found yourself having less time because they were home. <laughs> I nose, yeah. I'm a journalist, and I, and I put things on the internet, and what I get back is just overwhelmingly negative and hateful, but I am like very, I am like, you know, but I have a lot of friends in the industry who are women. I didn't know that what I get is like a fraction of that. And and I have a lot of good friends who are, you know, I have friends who are women who write about Elon Musk. And so <laughs> I know that I, I, you know, again, it, it, it could be much worse than I, I, I get, but also, you know, there are, there, there are two topics that I, you know, I, I don't bring up in mixed company as an icebreaker. I mean, I would say one used to be abortion, but that ship has kind of sailed now, right? I mean, it's like... We can talk about abortion. That's, that no, is no, no, also no, no, a big... No, but that's a thing no, for me. I mean... That, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying. I'm saying the ship has sailed for, for me feeling like I can't bring up in mixed company because it's oh, yeah. like, it's just there. And then the other thing is Israel is, is just like, <laughs> no, let's talk about abortion. <laughs> I mean, Israel's Israel is, is a mess right now, but the, the answer is always the occupation. So can't, I can't imagine what you get online. Oh yeah. No, there are a lot of different people who hate me for a lot of different reasons. Um, the variety of people who hate me is, is, you know, it's like a whole rainbow um, between the, you know, Jewish men of a certain orientation who are angry because I'm a woman who is a rabbi who, you know. When you say orientation, you mean a, a belief system? A belief, yeah, I'm Orthodox men. Not all Orthodox men, but. Um, hashtag. Hashtag not all Orthodox men. <laughs> some of my best friends are Orthodox men. No, I mean, literally, but no, they're, you know, some ultra Orthodox dudes will come in and be really nasty to me and, uh, you know, play that your ordination isn't real game or you couldn't be a rabbi, right? There's that. There's the, um, there are the white supremacists. There are the Christian, there's Tradcath and then the Christian evangelicals and like those varieties of antisemitism. I talk about, I'm a, listen, I'm a feminist rabbi who talks about abortion a lot on the internet. Sure, that's three like, strikes right there. <laughs> You know, and you know, and trans rights. So, yeah. Listen, there, there's a base level of like you're not you're not going to win over the white supremacists. I mean, I have no. I'm not going to win over a lot of people. That's fine. Yeah, and and that's not. I mean, obviously, it would be great if you did, but you can't. You can't spend all your time trying to uh, get through to people who. I guess just, you know, in that specific case, just don't want you to exist. I know one, one does not, um, try to, uh, ask permission of people who do not want to validate your, your existence or your, your work in any way. Um, I'm an organizer. My job is not to try to even try to convince 
people who are coming and, you know, standing and glaring at me with their arms crossed. My job is to tell the truth as I know it and try to organize and galvanize everybody else and say, you guys, things are on fire. We need you to get off your butt and to, um, to do something, right? So the goal isn't to change minds. I, I am over here doing my work. If people are going to change their mind as a result of reading me, engaging with me, that's great. And sometimes I will have a, a back and forth with a specific person. And sometimes really interesting things come of that. And that's fabulous. Like those are lovely moments. But um, I am in it to do my work. I am in it to say, uh, you know, abortion justice is in a really, really bad way right now. We need you to show up. My job is not to try to convince people. It is there are people who are who understand that abortion justice is important, but have not gotten off their butts and or don't know where to go or don't know what to do and want to be helpful and aren't really sure. And my job is to galvanize and activate and show them the way. Um, there are people who yeah, theoretically are in favor of trans rights. Sure, I guess, but do not understand how big an emergency it is right now. And so my job less officially, I mean, my work at NCJW is very much about organizing the Jewish community for abortion justice. And that is what I do all day, but just as a human being, we're in an extreme moment with trans freedom and safety. And so I'm yelling a lot about that because people need to understand and to, to show up. Um, and if there are going to be people who are going to learn something new and be persuaded and finally get the memo that actually um, the Bible doesn't uh, forbid abortion, right? Over here in Exodus, right here, it specifies that the fetus does not have the status of personhood. And over here in Psalms, that's a metaphor. Um, great. But... Those, that's not my main audience. My main audience is everybody else. Are, are there times or have there been times where in, when these sort of like, um, you know, deeply held beliefs that, that are that are connected to feminism or that, you know, that are connected to your life before entering study um, conflict? Not really, because my belief in my unshaking belief in the essential personhood of all people um, and my deep belief that anti-racism and anti-ableism and, and all of that and you know, queer rights, all of that is, is uh, non-negotiable. Um, that comes first. And there are times when my tradition is extremely, uh, wise about this stuff. Really, I mean, our tradition, right? Really, really wise. Um, when we there's see ancient intersectionality in the Bible, right? All of that stuff about the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, 
going again and again, you have to make sure you're taking care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger. That's, that's intersectionality. Those are three categories of people who are uniquely vulnerable in poverty, right? The one person, because of her marital status, she does not have a male protector. One, because of their age and do not have a male protector. Um, and one, because their, their national status and they're, they don't have the language or the interpersonal ties or the, um, you know, the webbing of, of, of connection um, the way other people do. And so for them, poverty is a different kind of a risk. Sometimes we really get it. And there are other times, you know, when I listen to the, the rabbis of the Talmud talk about women sometimes, it's like, my dudes, that is not it. In the sense that that that, that theirs that theirs is an incorrect reading, in the sense that they are, it's a place, uh, you know, it's a study hall full of men reporting from the Sassanid Empire, you know, ancient what's now Iraq, um, you know, circa three hundred CE. Their ideas about women are not always going to be um, reflective of. You don't have to go back two or three thousand years to to experience that. I mean, obviously, that's something that, in a lot of ways, carries over now. And it, I mean, it seems to me that the that both the best, but also simultaneously most frustrating thing is how much a lot of these things are are open to interpretation. Yes, which is I, I really think beautiful. Um, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said that, you know, every generation receives the Torah anew. And, like, you know, what's so powerful about that is, you know, um, 40 years ago, women started showing up and saying, actually, uh, if you read this story with my life perspective in it, you will notice a whole bunch of new things that y'all never pointed out. And... Now, as we have more, uh, you know, trans rabbis who are uh, sp- making space for both the Jewish legal and the um, interpretive, um, sort of looking at the story, <laughs> like trying to figure out how to talk about this without the Hebrew words falling out of my mouth, uh, you know, looking at both the stories and the laws, um, as more and more Jews of color, Black Jews specifically, are becoming rabbis. Um, you know, we're getting a whole new uh, wave of fresh, amazing Torah. Like there's, you know, more disabled voices are coming in. Like we're getting new, amazing things are coming into being. Every generation comes in and starts asking different questions because they're noticing new things in the text that people haven't been thinking to ask about. Awesome. It's a nice way of thinking about it because I've, you know, like I've always thought of Judaism specifically as just contracting in terms of like, it feels like they're just like, obviously it's already a very small percentage of the population, but it does kind of feel like it's getting smaller. No, the, what I have started to see is that um, many of the people who have been gatekept for many, many years are, have finally managed to, not everybody, but you know, a lot of people have managed to kind of get through um, 
some of the, the gatekeeping and are now, this is the time when a lot of people are starting to get ordained. When, so when you say gatekeeping, you mean specifically being ordained in that yeah, instance? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, a system that has traditionally, well, first privileged, um, you know, able-bodied, cisgendered, straight white men um, with the, you know, adoring uh, wife. Um, who's able to be there and be present and help co-run the synagogue, even, you know, she doesn't have a career, right? And then and then little by little, they very begrudgingly let in some white women. And um, then it's like, oh, now we have to talk, deal with gay people? Uh, you know, <laughs> not that. They made the exact sound. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, now, finally, um, you know, we've lost so many amazing people who should have 20, 30, 40 years ago uh, had access to this. But now there's just extraordinary people who are coming into leadership. And I'm so excited to see what the Jewish world's going to look like 10 years from now when they're running stuff. It's organic. And, and it's, this always struck me partially because, you know, one of my my rabbi's like big um uh his his big goal or his, uh his big like pr- you know purpose was um you know he's he was very invested in uh, Ethiopian Jewry mm-hmm. like a very and i don't know to my mind a big part of the reason why it didn't spread uh, has you know hasn't continued spreading is because there isn't this idea of like missionary in the same way in terms of Christianity, right. In terms of mm-hmm. like colonization and things like that. But this is, you're, you're describing a much more organic way in. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, listen, 15 ish, probably percent of American Jewish population are Jews of color. Um, and folks from, you know, a lot of different stories about that. And between that and between forcing rabbinical schools to finally get their acts together in terms of disability accommodations and get their acts together around, you know, admitting trans and non-binary students and folks who are at the intersections of all sorts of things, um, get when different voices speak it changes things like so the 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 metaphor that that somebody that i've heard before and it's it's cute back in the olden days it used to be the the natalis or uh what do you call it a ritual shawl um i was gonna say scarf but that's a much better yeah what do you call it it used to be just white with blue stripes and then the feminists showed up and they were like, I'm going to I'm gonna wear a talus, but I'm going to make my own and I'm going to crochet it or I'm going to make it, you know, with, um, you know, I'm going to do beading or I'm going to do I remember some pink ones showing up. Or, yeah. Right, yeah. And, and now when you go to synagogue, you will see a whole range of all sorts of different colored tully tote on men and women and non-binary people, right? Everybody's wearing... Tully, different tally tote, right? Like women coming in in the 70s saying, we're going to do things. Are We want to do this for us, changed this for everybody. 
right? That's such a tiny, like nothing uh, attempt to try to explain what the thing is, right? When you do it right, the thing expands for everybody and everybody benefits and everybody gains. Just like when we break the shackles of uh, gender oppression, it's not just good for women, right? It is good for every, like, (laughs) white men also, like, are allowed to cry. Yay! You know? This is largely reform that you're describing, at Um, least where where these changes are starting to occur. Is is it it trickling in and is it affecting more orthodox quarters? I I mean, you know, there there are several other denominations of Judaism. There's, you know, conservative movement is, you know, no, it ha- it it is there is a it happens in waves. So uh you know the whole hubbub about women getting ordained was, you know it was 1972 in the reform movement, 1985 in the conservative movement, and now there are orthodox women being ordained as rabbis in Yeshivat Maharat. Right? And that's been in in going on for 10 plus years, I don't know. And, you know, Orthodox women were getting ordained in secret before that. Like, shh, don't tell anybody. Yeah, I the shame of becoming enough. a rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the whole, you know, the process of women getting ordained in Orthodoxy was a trickle, right? And now I'm watching, we're watching Orthodoxy start to grapple with LGBTQ ordination. And it's, it's a thing. Um and so this is a ripple effect. You know, one of the things I always, certainly during Trump, I, I would ask anybody, like uh, when, it, when, I, when I interviewed older people, when I interviewed people, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, who had lived through, like specifically who had lived through Nixon, whether, whether this moment felt unprecedented. And to one, they, they would always say yes. Every single one of them just, again, just didn't, have a frame of reference for what we were going through, and as you're you're describing these, you know, these many crises, uh, you know, and and they're all they all obviously are, and and it does feel like we're kind of jumping from one to the other most of the time. What gives you what gives you faith, and do you feel do you genuinely feel like things are getting better, or at least that they can? I believe that they can. Um, I, you know, less than a a year since the fall of Roe as, you know, with 400 anti-trans bills being introduced in 2023 alone, I, you know, it's, (laughs) it's early March. Um, And they all seem to get worse every single one you read. mm -hmm. There's just. (laughs) Yeah, no, they're emboldened. There was one in Tennessee that I saw the other day, which is also like, oh yeah, this also implicates not only gay marriage but interracial marriage of just oh, like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. no longer the trickle, but just kind of really just going for the juggler at this point. White supremacist Christian nationalism is 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 up and running. Um, I I believe in us. What can I say? I know that we as human beings have lived through horrible times in the past. 
And I believe that if we are able to understand this moment, this very, very real threat for what it is, and come together, you know, stop any possible infighting and really start showing up for each other. Um, and, and understand that all of these attacks, right, the, the attacks on teaching accurate history on uh, people's bodily autonomy in 17 different directions, including gender, uh, gender healthcare, and in terms of uh, abortion access and in terms of everything, um, it's all interconnected. It's all one fight. And I, 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 I believe in our ability to, to show up and, and to, to recognize this as the, the backlash and the, you know, the attempts of a, a dying worldview to try to come in and strangle us all before we snuff it out. And if we can show up and say, no, you cannot have us. Um, you know, I, I like, I, I believe we will get there. And it may be a long haul fight. Well, you use the word dying, which, you know, seems to imply that it's really, you know, obviously this happens a lot when things are kind of in their last moments. They- right. I mean, you know, white supremacy has held on, held on pretty effectively for a long time. So who knows? But uh, I mean, the, the this, there's so much um, backlash. This is so much backlash. Um, all, all of the last five or six years has, has been such a backlash to um, the progress we had begun to make as a society. And, the, you know, and of course, in so many ways, it is um, things that had seemed like pro- progress um, up top, but in terms of poverty and systemic racism, the, there had not been progress. And in some ways, we're just beginning to understand the work that needs to be done there's been prog- there's been some progress right. but it's not enough not enough and i think maybe now what one of the things that give me hope since the uprisings of 2020 uh, after the murder of george floyd there's as as it seems has been polling that white people now have uh, less illusions of um, equality between uh, Black Americans and white Americans. The, you know, this before then, polling had been like, "Oh yeah, you know, I think we're pretty much equal. I think everybody's got equal opportunities." Right? We elected a Black president. It's we're done. It's we're good. Right. We're good here. And, yeah. And now more and more white Americans actually see what's going on, which means that hopefully, uh, more of us can be part of the solution. Um, I don't know how many people are going to be hurt in the meantime. I don't, I do not think that this middle part is going to be without damage, but, um, you know, and I don't think it's going to happen overnight, right? It took them 50 years to overturn Roe. We're not going to get it. We're not going to get things back to back to where they need to be and back on track and then moving in the right direction. 
uh, tomorrow. And I believe that we can and I believe that we will. <laughs>